Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thank you for joining me today. Today, we have our guest, Sandra Bishop. Sandra, thanks for joining the show. Oh, I'm super excited to be here. Oh, and thank you so much for your flexibility. I know it took a bit to get you on the show, and I'm really grateful that we were able to coordinate that. Let's begin by having you give an introduction of yourself for our listeners. So I'm Sandra Bishop. I have been a BCBA for 13 years, which is pretty exciting um, considering how new our field is. And I am the president of DCABA and I am a certified clinical trauma professional. I um, have been really, really passionate about trauma-informed ABA, which I'm excited to talk about today, and also models that are focused on self-advocacy versus compliance. I have worked sort of in all sorts of environments. I started my career in group homes kind of accidentally and have worked in schools, you know, obviously in homework and in clinics. I also sometimes get asked to testify as an expert witness. And, you know, right now I just wrote a handbook on how to create trauma-informed treatment plans that looks at trauma as a setting event, um, which I'm super proud of. And I do webinars, trainings. I was actually just a keynote speaker at Utah ABA, and I was I presented at WIBA, which was also really, really great. So yeah, so that's who I am. I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Self-proclaimed awesomeness is always a great thing to add to one's resume and bio. You have quite a bit of things in your background that I really do want to dig more into. The first part, I think, is I'd like to just talk to you about, you mentioned that you're the president of DC ABBA. I don't know how many people are aware of their state chapters and how many people aren't and how active they are. How did your involvement in that chapter begin and what does it look like now in, in DC? Yeah, so it's actually super interesting because so DC is really small, um, like physically, it's actually only 10 miles square and we don't have a licensure. And because of that, you, you don't like automatically sort of do something. And so we have a difficulty actually reaching BCBAs to join for membership. So we're really small and Virginia and Maryland are bigger and both have conferences. And so a lot of time you gain membership when you have your conference and VABA is super active and amazing. And so our membership is super tiny. So if you're from DC, please join us. So we're actually working on partnering with VABA to do like a um, add-on membership. And so like for an extra $5, join DCABA, which we're super grateful. Um, that they're willing to do that with us. Potentially they're meeting with their board to see if they're willing to do that. So they might not. And if they don't, of course we value their sovereignty to do whatever it is that they want to do. And we will love them. Virginia was, you know, getting licensure nine years ago. I mean, they were super early in that journey. And so watching that and seeing them do that work was pretty amazing. Thanks for sharing. I was curious about DC being wedged in between these other states and wondering how that worked. I myself, when I did my undergrad, was in West Virginia and I was always straddling those borders. And so even when I got my teaching license, it was like, do I do it in all three of these areas? Do I do it in two of the states? 
I ended up moving to Massachusetts and just transferring the license there as well. But I always have such an interest in that area. That's the area near there in Maryland that my high school time was and things like that. So I have a little bit of recollection of just the geographic piece of it. There's just so much to know. I think it brings it back to the value of having the state chapters, the relationship with the state chapters, who oftentimes are warehouses of getting that information. Or when people find the information, it gives them a source to to share it and for it to live and for it to be disseminated. So I love, I love, love, love this idea. Hope it works out. And if it doesn't reach back out to me, we'll see if we can find other solutions. And But thank you for sharing and congratulations on, you know, taking that, that leadership piece and continuing to keep people active. So yes, one more plug out if you're in the DC area and you are not yet a member of DC ABBA, we super duper encourage you. Tell them Behavior Babe and tell Sandra, nice to see you again, because you got the referral from her podcast episode. You also mentioned that you are certified in clinical trauma and your background experience and expertise in that area is a big part of why I wanted to have you join the show today. Please do the best you can, as simple as possible, to kind of talk about that, start uh, planting the seeds, and I know I'm going to have a ton of follow-up questions. Yeah, so I became a foster parent in 2011, and I had a crisis of BCBA-ness where I suddenly felt like I was traumatizing children in what we were doing as a field. You know, I talk about in the handbook um, and in my trainings, when I do the trauma-informed ABA trainings, that, you know, if a kid is trying to get your attention in ABA, right? And of course, this is very basic understanding, right? Um, And they throw a shoe at you, you ignore it, right? In trauma-informed systems, if a kid is looking for attention and they throw a shoe at you, you're supposed to love on them. And obviously those things are incompatible. And if you ignore a kid who's experienced neglect and who's throwing the shoe at you as a way to manage that, you're gonna re-traumatize them. And no matter how much you try to do attention extinction, you're not going to win because that is so powerful um, of a function. And so, but also you have to bridge that, right? Because foster parents are taught this. And then I was finding that they were never taught that next step, right? Like, because sometimes they don't stop throwing the shoe (laughs) and you can't expect foster parents to just have shoes thrown at them, right? And every once in a while I'll do a training and they'll be like, somebody throws a shoe at me, I'm going to hit them, right? Because they train foster parents too. And to be like, thank you for your honesty. This is just, <laughs> just a, a way of describing this. <laughs> like, this is a, this is a metaphor here. Um, and so, but I was trying to figure out how to look at this behavior analytically, because I was like, there has to be a way for us to merge this because all things are behavior. And so I started thinking about us looking at these trauma events, right? So this, this early neglect as a setting event, right? And the setting event is something that makes an antecedent more or less likely to occur. And so you think about like, you know, a kid who sees a cookie, he jumps up and down and screams, 
he gets the cookie, right? Access. If we have a regular setting event, which is he skipped breakfast, our intervention is we feed him breakfast, right? And then we may not have to do any type of intervention. Just make sure the kid eats and he's not gonna tantrum for cookies. We can teach him to ask cook for cookies later and all of that stuff, but we just make sure this kid gets breakfast, he's gonna be fine. If we then find out that he's had a history of food deprivation, well, now that's gonna affect our behavior chain. And if we start taking cookies away from him when he sees them, we're gonna activate that, that stress, right? Which we can measure by heart rate and all of those things operationally. And so if we teach an intervention where we give him a food chart so he knows when his meals are gonna be, we give him access to carrots and he can eat carrots all day long. We can deal with that anxiety, right? And I use those words, right? It's not, oper it's not behavior analytic, but I use it for power and for ease. But again, we can define it if we want to. Um, if we just deal with that, we may remove the entire behavior chain. And so that's how we look at it. It's super cool. And then there's also other interventions that go into that, but that's the main crux of it. I love the simplicity and I know it's much more complex, of course, than, than we've led on for it at the moment, but that does help paint a picture and give some imagery for people to explore as we're having these conversations. For myself, I think early on in my career, it was being, oh, oh you're an expert on behavior, here, come work with, you know, our um, special education, uh, intellectual disability uh, classrooms or students with those profiles. And then it was like, oh, you're good with that. Come work in our emotional behavioral traumatized, you know, trauma classroom. And, you know, thankfully I was in the midst of um, still finishing my graduate program. So I had lots and lots of support from directors and other people in the department who had much more experience. I had, I had none. And one of the things I learned was a lot of what I didn't know. And two was just how different you apply interventions to different populations. And of course that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense um, when we say it out loud and, and 20 years in the future now looking back, but it was a colleague I was working with, Jessica Minahan, who really took to working with that population and ended up talking a lot about how it might look the same on the outside, but here's why a five-star sticker chart or token system, you know, might work with that individual on a Monday at noon, but isn't going to work on Monday at three or Tuesday at, at nine because of all of those histories and internal pieces. And I remember not too long after that thinking, what about that for everybody else who can't tell us what, what their experiences have been? And I'm curious if, if you're able to share more about your role of fostering, um, you're sharing how that those experiences brought to you this uh, realization like oh there's another way to do this or the way i've been doing this doesn't seem appropriate maybe it just leads us to talking about your handbook i, I think like how did how did you then go okay these are the things that work here's how we're going to work this and is it something you're targeting to shift behavior analyst mind and support everybody out in the world who's trying to navigate this or do you have more of a specific audience in mind yeah i mean so i think it's both so I think this is what we have to do as behavior analysts. I think first off, we don't look at setting events enough, right? We're like, oh, we have to do antecedent interventions, but then we're not creating behavior plans that look at these enough. And we're definitely not looking at setting events, right? You think about like, right, if anybody's had a toddler, right? Um, if they haven't had a nap and you ask them to put their shoes on, 
they're gonna they're gonna throw their shoes, right? <laughs> it has nothing to do about the shoes. We could create an intervention about putting on shoes, and we're wasting our life because mm -hmm. they it, it has nothing to do with shoes. They're just tired, right? And so we just need to make sure they sleep, right? We can teach them to demand no thank you, and that's great. But like literally, it has nothing to do with shoes. And so as behavior analysts, like we have to be looking at setting events and we'll do that sometimes, right? You'll have a behavior plan that says, make sure the environment's not too cluttered. Make sure you stand between, you know, at arm's distance, make sure you do these things. But we tend to create behavior plans that all have the same thing for everybody, right? Particularly for schools. And then they'll call them antecedent interventions, which is weird. Um, <laughs> But, but we don't look at the behavior chain and how it directly affects the behavior chain. And maybe they get sleep is gonna be for every kid and it doesn't have to be directly related, right? So I have a headache might be why I'm more likely to be less resilient and it has nothing. And so then I'm more likely to tantrum for cookies, right? Um, but if I know this kid has a headache, I need to be addressing that. I need to not just say, make sure there's not clutter in the environment if that has nothing to do with this kid. So I think that's a component of it. Um, sometimes there's not gonna be the trauma piece, right? Like that, that in this particular behavior chain, but that doesn't mean that the intervention is not trauma-informed, hmm. right? Because we still, there's a whole consequence intervention too, where it looks at, um, we, it's, it's called basics, um, because I'm very clever because my company's called basics. So I made an acronym called basics, um, which basically <laughs> has six different responses and you don't do all six, but it's break. It's always reinforced it's safety, um, which includes reminding kids of these interventions you've created for them, like redirecting them to their food chart, as well as making sure everybody's safe. Um, there's these I wonder statements, which is, um, which is a great way to interact with a kid without um, making them have to directly talk to you. Also, I'm sorry. So one thing that's a growing edge for me is I can I work with children, so I tend to say kid, but you don't stop being autistic when you're 18. And so it also is something that we need to be better about is not referring to this population as children, but I tend to still do that. So I'm working on it. Um, and then there's C for calm, so remain calm. And then there's S for silliness, which is another strategy you can use. Again, know your population. Like for my own, one of my daughters, if I was silly, she'd be so mad at me. I am angry. Why are you being silly, right? So you just yeah. have to know the student. But what happens is, is that these consequence interventions, these basics interventions are around de-escalation, not related to the function. Okay. And that is a, a trauma-informed response. So if Marcos wants his cookie, right? Cause he's jumping up and down and screaming and he can't have the cookie. We're not gonna give him the cookie, right? But for always reinforce, if he asks for the cookie, we're gonna give it to him. Even if we might run the risk of pairing the tantrum with asking because we don't need to like break his will. <laughs> We want to reinforce mm -hmm. the behavior. Um, and if we pair it, we'll fix it, right? Um, yeah. If he's tantruming for the cookie, mom, 
can create safety by hugging him and loving on him, right? Yes, it may create attention for tantruming. And if it does, we'll look at our data and we'll address it. But more likely it's gonna self-regulate him so we can engage in the teaching that needs to happen. Um, we don't need to live in fear that we're gonna accidentally reinforce a behavior by teaching our kids, treating our children or the, the people that we work with like they're human beings. Like they're human beings. I think there's so much fear within the technicians, the, the analysts themselves as well of like, I must follow a rigid, strict protocol. And it's like, no, you, you mustn't actually. <laughs> strict mm -hmm. protocols are there to guide us. Like the adherence to them needs to be whatever level is, is appropriate for the child. I've spoken with technicians and analysts who, I'll give an example. You've done such a great job again with imagery. Let, let me add to an example. There was a, a child, a very early learner, three or four years old, wanting to transition from a space in the clinic to the sensory jungle gym room. And um, when we went to go in there, there was an electrician who was rewiring the wire. So nobody could go in the room at the moment. And the technician started to just present alternate choices, a great idea, you know, trying to be soothing. I appreciated that. One suggestion I had was like, open the door and show him the electrician. Like he, his, his, it was a half a wall. So he wouldn't have been able to see over it the way we as adults could. And it was like, I know, but I'm supposed to kind of remove him from the environment quickly before he gets upset. And it's like, actually, if you led me here and told me we were gonna come and now it's not available, like, why is it not available? So we did show him like, look, the electrician's here. I understand that that still might be a foreign concept, but then he sat down and began to cry and tantrum on the floor. And the first um, response of this technician who I felt had a very loving energy and interaction with him. So let me just preface with that. But the first thing she did was start a timer. And in her mind, it was, I, I wanna make sure I get the data accurate. I wanna make sure that it's very technical and um, I could see she either hadn't been trained or wasn't yet at the place where that fluidity comes in with adjusting to your situation. And what I did, and again, I was trying not to intervene, but I, I wanted to. So I walked over and I said, like, it is such a bummer that this is not open right now. Um, I can sit with you or do you want to come sit in a chair? And we like, you know, mm -hmm. couldn't always get onto a floor next to a child who is tantruming. That might not be safe for everybody, but offering that felt appropriate and then offering a chair. And he chose the chair, like, and sat down and continued to cry. Um, and occasionally we'd say like, this is upsetting. Like, I understand why you're sad. And I think there's that, that gradient of like, if I say it too much, I'm contributing to and potentially reinforcing this. If I don't say it at all. I lack any semblance of being a human being. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that is a struggle for people. I don't wanna say just new analysts or new technicians, but because we have an influx of, of new uh, interest in the field, we do have this continual need to promote this, share this, train, provide resources. So again, thank you for that. I think when I saw that, that interaction, the technician was super responsive, but was the analyst was then like, how do I write that in a protocol? And I'm like, ah, it's bigger than the protocol, but it's a good place to start. Yeah, and so we write in our protocol, put it in the, we put the basics 
uh, acronym in there. And so we'll do, you know, the student cries. These are the things you can do. And that's the response, you know, acknowledge the feelings, offer safe choices, you know, sit in and offer an invisible chair for silly, right? So those are the things we do. Now, at some point, right, it's become so escalated that offering an invisible chair is going to aggravate the student, yeah, right? Yeah. So then there's a separate protocol for once the child is so escalated. And at that point, that's essentially just giving them space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I felt, and, yeah. I was going to say, I felt like it, it went really well in that situation. He certainly was upset for a few moments, and I felt like it was definitely proportioned to the situation. Um, don't always feel that, but that's my perspective from, from the outsider. Uh, in this case, I just truly understood it. It was about six minutes of frustration. I love the silliness piece, not something that I was thinking of intentionally. I had a notebook. And in my notebook, uh, he was really into reading words and hyperlexia kinds of things. And in the back of my notebook, I had drawn pictures with another um, child, like a son, a flower, a dog. And I was like, can you help me spell dog? Now, if he had complied, and I used air quotes there, uh, that wasn't the point. The point was more of like, does is he ready to interested and engaging? Can I be a symbol of fun and transition for him? Uh, we ended up getting another activity. He moved on uh, and was happy and things were good. But what really struck me and what made my heart sink was when I left for the day, the therapist said, I'm so glad you showed me that. Normally that would have been an hour. And I was made more aware of just the vastness of the challenge and the training that was needed uh, in that location in particular, um, because in, I wasn't aware that behaviors like that were occurring for as long as they were. Well, and you know, what 10 years ago I would have said is, well, I mean, if we stopped it so soon, that means we reinforced it. So we need to get through that hour and get our extinction burst, right? When in fact we deescalated and we taught mm -hmm. the student to take a break we acknowledged their feelings and they de-escalated. They de now, obviously we need to watch the data. And if they start tantruming more and more and more and more, then we need to readjust. But that's what we do, right? We sometimes reinforce behavior on accident and this is a kinder way to do it. So the very worst thing we did is reinforce a behavior on accident and we're nice <laughs> while we did it. And so that's, that's the thing. And I have to say, I actually find for the most part, it's the brand new practitioners that are like into this. I think that when we talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier, but you know, APB, APBA did their like state of ABA, like right before COVID and said that two thirds of BCBAs had been certified in the last three years. And I imagine the numbers are the same now because people keep getting certified. And so we've got the BCBAs who've been certified for like, you know, 30 years before there was an exam. And then they've got, you know, those of us who were been certified for like 10 to 15 years, right? I've been certified for 13. And then we've got all the baby BCBAs, right? And so people, you know, in my generation were trained by these older 
the older generation of BCBAs. And we decided we wanted to do it differently. Um, and we used to do it the old way and now we're learning the new way and we're training all these new people. Um, but there's still this like mixed bag, right? Of who's doing it differently and who's not. Um, I cannot tell you how many people come up to me after my trainings or send me emails that say they were gonna quit ABA and until they saw my workshop and thanking me for giving them permission to do it kindly. And so I think that the new people, new BCBAs are like, yes, I'm on board. I wanna do it this way. You bring up some really good points. I think when we look at the the analyst who taught me to do what I know how to do, I feel very grateful that I was given a diverse experience. So I remember when I was pursuing certification, it was not really promoted or suggested that you have multiple supervisors. I remember I actually had to jump through some hoops to document that each one had done what they needed to do for me to test. Because of that, though, I feel just so grateful. And now it's a recommendation, have multiple supervisors, try to have supervisors in different settings and, and things of that nature, start to show us what we know about, you know, using multiple exemplars, we'll start generalizing out and have a better, hopefully more fluid way to do that. You know, I have seen kind of the challenges in both. One, we have a learning history to compete with for any of us who've just done things for so long that we haven't necessarily question them or we are questioning them and we have decided that we want to teach the, um, I like to say the early career analyst, we want to teach them the way that we feel is the most scientifically accurate and helpful human first, kind, compassionate, caring. We're hearing a lot of those words. I think it also looks at what's happening in society and, and how are we, there's a lot of division and uh, there's a lot of also people coming together through some of the polarizations. I love the idea that the science hasn't failed us and we have the opportunity to, to engage with it in a very critical way to elevate what we know, to question what we've done and to make those decisions to help future analysts, future clients and future technicians. The stats that I'm aware of most recently were 60% in the last four years from Neil Martin at the BACB in March of this year. Again, I don't know when's the last time the data was pulled, but I think we're looking at more than half more than half. And so that is going to continue to one, present uh, variability, I think, right? And we have a lot of questions and we're trying to navigate a lot about quality in the field. And one thing we were talking about before was understanding concepts that are related to insurance. And you had started to mention licensure. In some states we have licensure, I think it's 33 or 34 states now that still leaves a handful that don't my experience had been we passed licensure in Massachusetts a couple of years after insurance, but I left before either was enacted. In Hawaii, we ended up passing licensure because our health plans told us we're not going to agree to insurance coverage unless you have a licensure. So our legislators like waived a huge part of the process to say, look, we want to give insurance. We're told we can't unless we license you. And we didn't have anybody really practicing in a concentrated way, any, any large numbers, behavior analysis. So we weren't truly taking away something from somebody that they had been doing. It really wasn't being funded anywhere. Then I come to Florida, and now I live in Florida. And Florida had the Florida certification and behavior analysis. There's no licensure requirement. People are able to bill. 
you start having the licensure discussion and it may at some point eliminate some people who are currently practicing. And I think that is going to be the challenge for Florida. The challenge for DC is a size thing in some ways. Uh, the challenge for California is a size thing in another way. I just think that the more we have these conversations, the more we share our experiences. And I really appreciate your vulnerability of saying, 10 years ago, this is something that I would have done, or here's now how I'm doing it differently. Modeling that reflection, I think, is going to give people the freedom and the space to do that themselves. So I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. Well, I also think the thing about, you know, licensure in DC is that I don't even know, like, I don't even think we have the infrastructure to enact it. Like DCABA is so small. I don't know if we could even like, I don't even think we could even convince anybody to do it, <laughs> um, yeah. nor have the capacity point. to enforce it. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's a real struggle, whether or not it would be valuable, which, you know, I think many people would argue it is. Um, but, um, and, you know, all of the private insurances cover ABA generally in DC, but DC Medicaid doesn't, but the MCOs do. So everybody has to get off straight Medicaid and get onto an MCO. And so it's just this weird dynamic of coverage. Yeah. Let me use this as an opportunity to just plug the Autism Law Summit for anybody who's not aware. This is where I've learned so much about Medicaid's a federal benefit. It's not being covered somewhere. I have an attorney we can call. Um, you know, so we'll connect about those sorts of things and learning the intersection of schools, learning the intersection of, you know, how do we collaborate and work with other professionals, the payers, the health funders at the law summit, it's not called a conference for a reason. You have parents, advocates, self-advocates, you have providers, you have payers, funding sources, you have attorneys, and we get together for a couple of days and we don't all like each other. I mean, you know, or we are all not necessarily set up in a way to be running towards one another and say like, yes, but it's incredible the amount of information and then relationships that are formed. There was actually a Medicaid reviewer and they were at the summit and I happened to snag them during the break. My mom actually attended that event. She came and brought us snacks, you know, pretzels and water and then Oh, two weeks later, we're on a review call about why we need to reduce or not reduce services. And I'm like, hey, you know, Bob, for not giving this person's name away, like, nice to see you, hear from you again. Like, gosh, you know, like, so good to see you at the summit. And they're like, oh, yeah, your mom brought me pretzels. It, it, it makes the conversations, any conversation relationships make them easier. And that's what you're talking about with our clients, whether they are children or adults. That's what we've been talking about with uh, people feeling they have access to mentors. And then even when it comes to our funding sources, creating those relationships, the competence, and then the relationships as well. Our time has flown by. This is incredible to me. I have not even asked you half the questions I have for you. So I'm hoping we can spend maybe a few more minutes and uh, have you back for a second, second time around, maybe the next season, if you will, and hear about some of the excellent work that you continue to do. How does that sound for you? Oh, that would be amazing. I, um, I do want to add one more thing, which is that, you know, I think one of the reasons why people started to care about what I've been saying, because I've been talking about this for seven years doing, you know, workshops and stuff. And all of a sudden it blew up during COVID. And one of the reasons is because remote things became popular is that ECBA suddenly saw 
trauma. Because on March 22nd, 2020, every person who we work with, all of us, lost everything. <laughs> and I think BCBAs finally saw what happens when people lose caregivers, when people lose all of their supports, when kids become afraid that they're going to die when they walk out of their house. And I think that the pandemic, you know, all everyone we work with has experienced a trauma event at this point. Now, not all of our students are going to experience trauma behaviors as a result, but I think we need to, I think a lot of us are now aware of that. And if we're not, we need to be sure we are. So we should be doing trauma-informed care with everyone. It should be standard anyway, but we should also be aware that everyone we work with has experienced the pandemic. Um, and I just think that's a really important thing to remember. In many ways, the pandemic showed the disparities across many different groups, but I agree with you. One of the things that it really connected us through is that we all have this shared um, experience of a very uncertain time that I'm going to say is, was traumatic for everybody, perhaps in different ways. And I appreciate you saying that may not manifest in trauma style behaviors, but that event, and we have, we have the knowledge of that. Not only do we know it happened, we live through it and we watch it happen with other people. And that is perhaps a big part of a reset of things going on. Uh, more globally, uh, hopefully, as well in a positive direction. Sandra, I want to make sure, too, that people know how to find you or gain access to the information you're talking about and you as a speaker. What's the best way they can do that? All of my information is on our website, which is basicsabatherapy.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Sandra Bishop, um, which is S-A-U-N-D-R-A. People can always email me. There's a contact form on the website. Um, I love to make friends with BCBAs. We can be best friends on the internet. But, um, but yeah, on the website is where you can get the trauma manual webinars. You can find me to come and do trainings for your organization. I do trainings all the time for organizations and uh, I have glowing reviews. I've been told by multiple organizations that it's the best workshop that they've ever had. I've had more than one organization say that, which is pretty great and exciting to be told that. The website and Facebook, and then once we connect there um, to email. Um, but yeah, I want to be all your best friends. <laughs> Thank you for so freely sharing the information. And as I mentioned, being so clever in the way in which you provide imagery, you can simplify some pretty complex topics for us. And just for the expertise you bring when people have questions and want to gain knowledge beyond the basics. So you heard it here. You can get this information by going to Sandra's website at basicsabatherapy.com. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can also do so by visiting www.behaviorbabe.com.